Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. So glad that you're here. We've got a special guest in the studio, Mark White, the founder of Akimoto, a Porsche shop in Madison, Wisconsin. So glad to have you here, man. I'm happy to be here. Right on. It was uh, nice to have you up. You got family in the in the area for holidays and snuck you in here in the studio. That's pretty great. It worked out. Yeah. So uh, how did we meet anyway? It was at Road America, wasn't it? It was. It was at Road America, I think. And uh, I think it was the what really drew my eye was um, how many? This is probably what four or five years ago now, maybe even more. Yeah, it was yeah. during uh, the Hawk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been a while, um, but I still—it must have been five years because I had just gotten my seventy-two nine eleven, which was black with the red deck lid still, and it was—it's an Albert Blue car. And I saw um, the Albert Blue car that you guys had built for one of your clients, and I was just drawn to it immediately. And once I was drawn to that, I started to see some of the other stuff that you guys were building with the other liveries and stuff like that. And I noticed that it was really special. It was really unique. And and I had to find you and I had to talk to you. So, Yeah, and I think we, didn't we connect right after that up at, uh, well, up here? Yeah, it was we, at Brainerd, at Brainerd. Right? Yeah, yeah. I came up and I don't make it to Brainerd very often unless there's a good reason. Because uh, <laughs> uh, if you're not driving... I think the track is the good reason. Yeah, right? yeah, the track's the reason. But if you're not driving, it's not always the yeah. the greatest experience to wander around Brainerd for for an entire weekend. It's the track, anyway. Um, but yeah, that car was one of the cars that really inspired me to finally paint my car. Oh, cool! And it was uh, honestly, it was a little bit soul crushing at the time when I saw it because I I knew that eventually I bought the car knowing I could paint it Albert Blue with it one day. And then when I saw it, I knew that I couldn't do it. I knew that it wasn't going to happen for a while, and it was. And it was kind of sad. And then um, after Brainerd, I came down and shot uh, shot the blue car and Dirk, the mm-hmm. white car. Does the blue car have a name? I don't remember. Uh, Albert. Albert. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Original, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to figure something out. Yeah. And then I shot the, the tangerine car, the white car, and the blue car. Was that all in one weekend that we did that? Or did we do the blue car separate? I don't remember. I I honestly don't remember. I thought the orange car was separate but i it's been a while yeah it's been a while i remember riding in dirk that was that was awesome that was a really good experience uh um drove really well it had a great one thing i remember is that the gearbox obviously you know you have the engine everything always sounds great but the gearbox was perfect it was my first thing that i remembered you know thinking about that car yeah that the short ratio a combination of that with you know motor that has a decent meaty torque band you know i I had described that car as predator-like mm-hmm. because it, it always seemed to me like it was kind of uh, crouched and ready to pounce on something. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what is it about Porsche for you, kind of circling back to the beginning? What is it, you know, why? Because there's, you know, a million cars you could have dealt with as a kid, you know, growing yeah. up. What is it about Porsche that I, I was 10 when I remember seeing the broadcast, and I, I, I cannot remember if it was Wide World of Sports, but that would be my assumption at the time, you know, there were three network channels that you, you got plus PBS, right? Yep. So if uh, you were going to ro- watch racing, it was on one of those channels. And I, it was the IROC race from Riverside. And I had never seen a 911 before that I at least was aware of. And that blew my mind. And that image just was burned into my soul. Sure. And, you know, it stuck with me from then on. And then, you know, the uh, slot cars, AFX slot cars, uh, I still have, I think, you know, the everybody had the, well, everybody had the L&M 
917. And if, you know, you were paying attention, you probably had a 911 as well. Sure. And I still have both of those. Right on. Yeah. It's uh, for me, it's weird because I was born in 81. Yeah. So all this cool shit happened before I was ever born. <laughs> so I get to like, I go to the vintage races and I have my car and I kind of live vicariously through everybody else. So I almost have this nostalgia that's not real, mm-hmm. you know, because I was never there. But I just I I try to imagine what it would like to actually be there, and you know that's why I go go to the, some of the vintage stuff, and I, you know, I, and I see some of that pedigree and heritage in my car, and it's it kind of helps me feel like maybe I could kind of experience what everybody else did. It, I think it seems a lot more attainable now, even though the prices of these cars are ridiculous. You know, for me, the whole culture. I never saw myself figuring out a way to be able to own a 911, let alone do the things that we do with them. And, uh, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, it was a college town, and there, there were a few Porsches around, but, you know, there were a lot more Carmen Gias and, and things of that nature, right? So you didn't really see that. And I remember the first time a dealership opened up and, and seeing an actual, you know, wide body sitting there. <laughs> I mean, it was like going to the moon. And, right. um, well, compared to everything else that would have been domestic in the area yeah, or absolutely. whatever, just slow or quiet or it's yep. the opposite of all those things. Yeah. So, and, you know, with, with the internet now and being able to kind of immerse yourself in that, um, you know, if you were going to see that back in the day, you know, you were, maybe you could dig out a week out of the local library or, you know, you spent a lot of time looking at magazines because there wasn't that much of it on TV. Right. And, you know, it was... You had to go find it. Now it's absolutely. just it's there all the time. Yes. You, could, you can hit on the hashtag and see every yep. everything you specifically like anytime. Back then, you had to make a solid effort. It wasn't easy. You had to go go to the newsstand, you know, try and find a like a VHS tape or whatever the case may be. It wasn't a, a real effort to be involved. You just made me feel old because they, of course, didn't have that when I first started paying attention. The VHS <laughs> arrived about the same time you did, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. That's all right. I feel achy now. No, that's all right. So, uh, so how did this kind of parlay into this this love for Porsche and everything? How did it come into Akimoto? What, you know, was there like a, an, a like a singular event that was like, all right, I'm doing this? Yes. Um, so that vision quest that was created from seeing the IROC cars turned into a 930. Uh, and I think I was mid, mid-30s. And finally, I, I started out with a 944 S2, a 90 944 S2 that was a high-mileage one-owner car that the guy was upside down in. And, and I bought that car and loved it and actually sold it to a buddy with the agreement that when he sold it, I would get it back and I was going to club race it, even though I didn't have any idea of even really what club racing was or how to do it, you know, what the path would be to get there, right? But I just, I knew I was going to do it somehow, some way, someday. Uh, then I bought the 930. He, he subsequently crashed that car, fell asleep, and ran it into a tree. So that dream died with that car. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, but uh, this 930, I. I guess when it was sitting in the garage, it suddenly dawned on me that, hey, I, I, I want to learn actually how to really drive this car. I don't want to be the typical, you know, oh, look at that. He ran out of talent. He's going and, backwards. Yeah, <laughs> asked it into the weeds, right? <laughs> yep. So um, Skip was Barber. There, was there a moment that when you were driving that car that it scared you at any point? No, and that's probably the thing that was the, the most frightening is that I never had, 
I'm sure that you know they, there was an artificial limit that that I approached, but I I was unaware of it. Right. So, you know that. So the limit was this thing. You're like, I don't know what it's yeah, going to be like. It's a great abyss, right? Yeah, yep. You have no idea. So I I um actually, you know what? I take that back. I remember giving a ride to a buddy, and we crested a hill and ended up on pea gravel out in the country, and um, it was. It was like three things happened immediately. One, and this is a huge dude. This guy, you know, I don't, Pat was probably, and I'm, I'm not making this up, was probably six, four, close to, you know, maybe close to tipping the Toledos at 300 pounds, and he was a, uh, just a, a huge dude. He was a um, football player for Wisconsin and then did a bunch of strongman stuff after that. He made it sound like a little girl. <laughs> which kind of freaked me out because yeah. um, we were instantly sideways. And as I was collecting the car, the seat, the driver's seat actually slipped back about three notches. I, had, <laughs> I didn't have it. Or whatever. So no, I didn't. Or your foot on the, on the dead pedal or whatever. Yeah, you pushed. I, yeah, I didn't yeah. have it fully engaged. So yeah. I knew I was, you know, I knew not to lift, but apparently, yes, I put a little pressure on the dead pedal with my left foot, which moved the seat back while yeah. I was... So that actually, now that I think about it, probably created the pause that I needed in the corrections, so that I didn't, I didn't end up in the opposite ditch. Yeah, but, didn't uh, end up the yeah, yep. So that's kind of what started me thinking about. All right, I really need to be serious about learning how to drive this thing. I'm yet to have. I've only had one really scary situation in my car. It was, and I was in front of my buddy Alex, and I was trying to show off a little bit, and I was like, "Well, I can break way later than he can as E36 M3, right?" Mm-hmm. So I, I went into this. It was just a, you know, just a left hand turn right off a uh, four lane road onto a two lane road. And I just braked really, really late. And I kind of trail braked into the corner a little bit and the rear end just, I ended up drifting the whole corner and we got to my house and he's like, Oh my God, that was awesome. I'm like, Holy shit. I got to go change my <laughs> pants. Cause that was the first time that it was really like, it stepped out when I wasn't ready for it. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was scary, but I'm beyond that. I, I'm still haven't, I'm still scared and I've dri- been driving the car for five years. So it's, probably time I go somewhere where there's less consequences. Well, I mean, that is the nice part about, you know, spending the time in that environment, right? On track, you get a chance to really figure out, you can put experience with all the theory, right? All the things that you hear that are, you know, how this car is going to want to try to kill you. And you begin to understand, oh yeah, well, maybe if I don't put the weight there, it won't do these evil things. Sure. Sure. So, um, so you got the 930, what, how does that turn into Akimoto? Uh, I had a friend of mine, well, I should back up. I had that 930 and I had a shop in town uh, maintaining it. And uh, one of their customers had actually left and started his own shop. And I followed the mechanic, having never met that customer. When I then followed the mechanic to that shop, dropped the car off, and this customer said, hey, uh, you know, I'll give you a ride home. The long and the short of it is he, not long after that, closed that shop up. When he closed it, I ended up buying the fixtures. Okay. Again, still not, I mean, the racing wasn't on the radar. It just, I, you know, I, I wanted to buy the fixtures because we had a space that we needed a lift and tools, et cetera, and I just wanted to work on my own stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't have this grand plan to to start a shop that did everything that we do. 
but that guy encouraged me to come to a race, and it was one of the last races that they had or they were attending as a race shop, and that was my first real exposure to it. I had been to Road America before for um, it's either Carter or IndyCar, I can't remember now, and uh, even at that point in time, though, still the same thing. You know, it, it may have well been, you know, me saying, "Oh, I'm going to be a surgeon someday," right? Right. You know, it, it. I just didn't see it happening, so I went to Skip Barber, and you know. I, I always say that it, it's a, a very interesting conversation of being, you know, really naive and really narcissistic. You know, they said, well, you've got kind of an aptitude for this. And it just went from there. Right. So it, someone was just like, you're, you can do this. And you're like, all right, then I'm going to do it. Yes. And, and really what had, I mean, I should back the story up a little bit because I had two friends. I think again, I'm, you know, I think at this point in time, I'm late thirties and I had two friends of similar age die uh, pretty abruptly. Mm -hmm. And that was eye-opening to me because I had always had this idea in the back of my head that this was something that I was going to do, but there was no real clock ticking on it. I was just going to do it when I had the time and the money to be able to. And now I realize that, hey, maybe that time isn't as you know infinite as I think it is. Right. Yeah. I think that's something that we all come to in our, in our thirties. Right. Yeah, I think it kind of dawns on any, everybody in some way, shape, or form. Well, I'm seriously not as mature as most, so it took me a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's better to stay young in your head, anyway. Yeah. So, um, so when the shop first started out, what was it? What was the? Were you kind of like, well, let's just figure something out here? So I went through Skip Barber and this same, uh, you know, buddy, or he became a buddy, and he's actually now. Um, a very good customer of ours, he kept saying, you know, well, what are you going to do now? You know, <laughs> so we bought some go-karts and we actually ordered some go-karts. And in between the time that the go-karts showed up, uh, a customer that had been his went back to the shop that, that they were all originally at, right? And he decided that he was going to sell his GT car because at this point in time in the, in the early 2000s, there was a large migration in club racing for these guys going to the the cup car, the 996 cup, right? Okay. But they had all, you know, at, at some of the shops, they had spent all the money already, and they had gone through uh, GT RSs and RSRs, right? So, you know, what would have been an LMS car back in the day, right. you know, it's like everybody in club racing should have one of those, right? <laughs> You know, I mean, that just makes perfect sense. You take a guy who does it a couple weekends a year and let's just put him in the, in the, in the, in the top shit. Yeah. Just, right. Yeah. Let's put him yeah. in the fastest thing possible. Yep. Yeah. Great idea. Yeah. So he, so he had this GT car and he had, uh, I guess I had the, the great fortune of having sat in the stands with him in Canada corner, uh, when we were at this, the one club race that I had gone to as a, um, as a spectator. And, you know, we were chatting and I was kind of telling him that, you know, this is, this is something that, um, how was just, how was club racing different then than it is now? Do you think just briefly, what do you think um, from being there and seeing it, you know, at your first club race, what was that like then versus now? You know, I think, I think that the, at that point in time, there was a real acceleration in the attendance in, in like the Porsche club stuff that that I ultimately ended up getting involved in initially. Um, 
and I think that uh, that continued up until the economy took a shit. And then at that point in time, they readdressed it a little bit and said, well, you know, maybe we should try to treat these people like they're actually customers, which they actually really are. True. Yeah. And excuse me, I know some of the some of the sanctioning bodies have been able to achieve that. There were actually other, you know, like like NASA to SCCA, um, or I think there's a there's another Ferrari. Um, uh, it's not Ferrari Owners Club. I can't remember the name of it, but you know, there's the there's the Ferrari entity that's been around for a long time, and then another offshoot of that. That happened, I think, to a degree with Porsche Club and maybe POC on the on the West Coast, but I think that happened before the downturn in the economy. Um, anyhow, they you know they're they're trying, I think, to be a little bit more user friendly. It just still isn't completely there yet. Right, right. They just they kind of want it to be like this open arm thing, like hey, come be, and it wasn't always like that. Yeah, and it's it's you know there's just it's the you have to really want to do it. Right. So, you know, all the things like we were talking about with the Internet, et cetera, that just make things really easy today to become involved or engaged in something. It's still not really that way in a lot of a lot of places where it probably should be, you know, like like being able to. And I I don't I mean, I don't want to go off because I could, you know, (laughs) I see a soapbox over there I could stand on. But, you know, just the like like the difficulty in registering for a race or or different things that should be a lot easier. And I'm fascinated by this because, you know, our customer, as an example, um, anybody that, and I say this a lot of times about a lot of different things that we do, anybody that has gotten to a a point in their life where they they have enough discretionary income to do this, they're probably a particular personality type and they're somebody that probably really, you know, values their time. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. So it's pretty easy for them to get frustrated with a process, and sure. you know we've brought as a shop a lot of rookies to the table, and we've kind of done that by, you know, being a maven and, and doing some handholding and bringing them in initially and trying to get them introduced to the people that th- can then help them kind of complete the process. Sure, you kind of skip step one. With you guys, you can help them take care of it, and then as know, much as we can get rid of that frustration, so they yep. can just enjoy themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's I joke about it a lot, but I, you know, the whole like Akimoto really got started because I, you know, I was stomping around going, Jesus, I wish somebody would have showed me this shit when I was at this point. Right, right. You know, so I didn't spend all the money and go through all of the frustration and waste all the time that I did trying to figure it out. So you're talking with this guy in the bleachers. Yep. So how, what 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 was that all about? I, I told him kind of the same story I just told you about. You know, the what fascinated me with the mark and that, you know, I had uh, some friends pass away and that I'd gone through, or actually at that point in time, I hadn't gone through Skip Barber. I just was, I just was saying it's something I wanted to do someday. Um, he heard the story then about me going through Skip Barber and uh, I got a call out of the blue and he said, hey, I, you remember me? I'm so-and-so. We met at Road America. Um, I hear that this is what you did. I have a car I want to sell you. And I knew his car. It was a you know, pretty cool GT car. Okay. And first words out of my mouth were, of course, I remember you. Thank you so much for the phone call. I can't afford that. 
and, and, <laughs> right. and he said, well, I didn't, I didn't give you a price. And I said, well, I, I, you know, I, I remember your car and I, you know, that's just not anything that's even, I can't even, I don't want to insult yeah, you with a low right. offer basically. And he said, well, what can you afford? And I'm like, oh boy. So I told him and he says, all right, it's yours. And, um, his story was that, you know, he had just spent, I don't know, a big number on a GT3R that he then subsequently threw away. Actually, I think in turn two at Brainerd, uh, he ended it there and okay. um, had then sold that and bought a cup car and he had this GT car that was just kind of languishing. And at that point in time, you know, the 911s were unloved. Everybody wanted the bigger, better, faster color stuff. The water cooled was, you know, was it. And the air cooled stuff was just, you know, getting pushed aside. And uh, so it... Because it, nobody wanted to pay the money because it was just... Yeah. They were just, you know, a, a bear to deal with, really. Yeah, and they were, you know, it was a rapidly depreciating piece of, of metal sitting there. And they were... I mean, this was a cool car. This was a... Had actually been prepared for world challenge and it um portion of it was built by fab car and kelly moss was involved with it to a degree and um so it was a 9964 with a 3.4 in it okay and uh you know so it was kind of weird deal though both in cage but center locks air jacks you know it, it had met a particular rules pack at the time and then had been adapted for club racing right so fantastic car and i had no idea how great it was <laughs> until i got rid of it where's that car now do you think do you know it's actually in our stable it is okay yeah it's uh it's, found its way back home yeah the actually the same gentleman that owns albert owns that car okay. and uh um, have you, you know, driven it lately yep uh, well not lately but i drove it at sebring um oh not long after i, I kind of helped connect the two and then we went through the car and it now has the last the story or the legend is it's got the last uh spare motor that was built for the 993 rsr program and it was alex job's uh spare motor so it's a 3.8 slide valve oh nice and uh man talk about a cool car to drive yeah so you know? so are you able to when you you said when you first you know got that car you weren't sure how good it was now that you drive it after you know a period of years are you able to appreciate it now uh, in, yeah. yes yeah. yes and it's it's um i you know i'm much more aware at how good of a car it was and how well it worked and uh, you know that actually like a lot of these things helped me really forge the ideas for what we are currently doing right but i didn't you know i didn't i didn't really understand at the time or have any particular language to try to be able to explain it mm -hmm. um but i knew what that feeling was and i knew that we had to find a way to recreate it sure sure so in that vein um if you were to build a car as an acumoto customer of all the cars that you've built what would you build? You know, what would you, if you were going to come to Mark White and say, build me this car, what would you tell him you wanted? For a streetcar? Whatever you want. doesn't matter. Um, well, I mean, if you want a streetcar, then yeah. If you would want a track car, then whatever, yeah. either way. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, it, you know, I, I don't know how much of your listener base will actually know what it is that we do, but we're, you know, we're air cooled and, 
seven, eight years ago, we had a choice to kind of go in whatever direction we wanted to. And I said, you know what? And, and really, it was, I basically said, if we're not going to make any money at this, I want to do what I love, and that is the air-cooled cars. Mm -hmm. So we really went towards that. And, you know, that's, we race those cars, um, and we build these street cars. And the, the, the street cars were really born out of the cars that we are running on track. And, and we run, we have a GT program that we do where the cars, the 911s are a bit more elaborate and they've got a little bit of aero working for them, but there's nothing truly exotic about them. And then we've got a lot of customers that are in a class called um, Stock E in PCA. Those cars, for the most part, are, are the G-bodied cars, so anywhere from 78 to 89. And even though we've, on the street side, built a number of long hood cars, you know, I guess to answer your question, if you came to me and said, dude, I just want an awesome street car, you know, what do you think? Um, it wouldn't be very far off of what we did with Dirk. Uh, you know, let me tell everybody that um, the fit and finish on, I'll, I'll make sure I post a picture up on our social media, but the fit and finish of the cars that these guys build, uh, that your guys at the shop and, you know, you kind of oversee all these guys that are just amazing. It's you've put together a great team and what these guys build is second to none. I mean, it's really, really high quality stuff. So I just, I want to get that out there and let everybody know that you got, you've got the sweet um, Porsche club stuff, but you've also got these other cars that you build where they're just out of this world with like some of the custom touches that you guys have been able to put together. Well, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the team because that would be exactly where I would want to try to steer the conversation. Sure. Uh, you know, we have assembled, I mean, we've grown, the shop has grown from, from three guys to 13 over the course of the last several years. And, you know. And there's so know, much stuff that you guys do in-house. Yes. Yeah, we tr and actually. that's not typical. Yeah. You know, that's not. I mean, what you guys do there is, is atypical of the, of the formula. Every single one of these guys is as much a craftsman as they are a technician. And, you know, I'm. I'm proud of the fact that we do it all in-house. It's certainly not the most efficient business model, but it allows us, I'm not going to say me, it allows us to really control the end product. You know, I joke all the time about it, but the reality of it is, is I'm, you know, I'm the guy that thinks the shit up and then these guys execute on it, you know, and I then, you know, figure out how to drive it and teach someone that. Right. 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 And, and you notice I didn't say sell because that just happens organically in the right. process. It happens on its own. Yep. So, and I, and I cannot stress it enough that, uh, you know, I, having the team that we've been able to assemble allows me to think pretty freely in terms of what it is that I would like to do. So because we have kind of those tools in the toolbox, we can do things differently with, you know, an interior or, I mean, our stock, the cars that we built for the stock class in PCA, I would say the last couple cars that we've built as race cars, and this is without, you know, striving towards this, are probably the quality on these and the fit are probably as nice as most shop street builds. Yeah, they're really, really well yeah. done. And that's just the culture, and that's what the guys want. But more importantly, a customer base that's willing to, you know, to pay for that. And it's been fun. It, yeah. it really has. 
But that just still doesn't answer my question of what you would build. <laughs> I would build a G-bodied car. Okay. And it wouldn't have a hyper, uh, it wouldn't have a big displacement motor in it. Um, you know, anywhere from a from a two eight to a three two. Uh, we just the last car we just finished was for a customer in Canada, and that was really kind of a cool package, albeit a bit expensive. Um, but that was a two eight. RSR-esque spec motor with mid-rise fuel injection in it. And we hid all of the, the electronics, the Motec. Sure. All of that was hidden. So when you looked at it, it was just this gorgeous, cool piece. Yeah, that's kind of the bummer when you see somebody put all the updated uh, fuel injection stuff on things. It's all over the engine compartment, yeah. and it doesn't look right. So yep. it's nice to see that stuff tucked away. Yeah, I you know I want the aggregate of everything that's there to, to make the statement not this chaos of somebody looking and going, oh, look at that, they've got that, or ooh, they've got that, or ooh, they've got that. You know, we we talk about it all the time, but it's really more in the takeaway than it is in, in you know, my favorite line, I guess, is, you know, I don't want it to look like it went through Pep Boys with a crap magnet. Right, yeah, for sure. You know, it's the first impression of this stuff is, is everything. And a lot of times when people look at something, they can't quite pick up on why they like it. You know, they look at something and they're like, wow, this looks amazing but they just can't quite put their finger on it. And I think that's, that's okay. I think that works out well when they can't quite figure it out, but they love it anyway. You, from a non-Porsche guy, like a non-Porsche guy can walk up to that and go, I really like that and really have no idea what it is he's looking at. And that's, that's, that's success with it right there. You, that really has been the essence of it. And that's something that you know we work very hard at. We always say we want to work really hard so that it doesn't look like we're trying that hard. Sure, sure. So... Um, I want to kind of move uh, move away from Akimoto a little bit and get some of your thoughts on on just Porsche stuff in general. Uh, what do you think? Like this is kind of a an issue with me, and and I've been ranting about this a little bit about a, on the podcast. Is Porsche has twenty three or twenty two or twenty three different nine elevens for sale right now, um, and it just it seems a little overboard. It seems like we've moved beyond where it used to be, where it was like there was a German guy being like, "This is the one you will drive," uh-huh. and now it's just like this huge myriad of cars where you. I can't even know what I would choose. Uh, <laughs> it's too bad this uh, this isn't being videotaped because I'm sitting here with a goofy grin on my face. Um, I can't, you know, like I, more than a couple of our customers has, you name it, right? All the way up to and through 918 or the latest GT3 RSs or... McLaren, whatever. Yeah, yeah. but I'm talking about the Porsche lineup yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love them, but I don't relate to them anymore. And I've stopped trying. Um, I I think that's kind of a bigger, better, faster color deal. And so, um, is, so you're saying there's a period of time where you're like you're trying to force it upon yourself, like you can't relate to it anymore. Was there a time where you're like, all right, I'm going to really give this an effort. I'm going to try and appreciate what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, for me, I've you know I've had the good fortune of being on in most of that stuff on track. And, you know, I spent up to the 997 chassis in cup cars in anger. So, and then, you know, also spent some time in 991s, et cetera. And so I, I, you know, I love them, but I guess for me, when I look at the return on the investment, right, and let's just go back to the street side of things, and I'm not going to try to steer this back towards Akimoto. I'm just going to talk about the redemption and the driving experience, which is something I talk about a lot. One of the cars that we build, like I said, we don't shoot for big numbers, but if we build it correctly, the amount of enjoyment that you should be able to get out of that car is immense, all the way down to just driving it from here to Starbucks. 
right? Because you can actually be engaged with the car. It's a very analog approach, and there's a lot of feedback. And you know, the the car does things the way that you would want the car to do things, you know, and the and your engagement with it, etc. Right. So are you basically saying that the newer cars get in your way? Yes, and how do you use it? You know, you can buy a base Boxster right now, go stuff your foot in it for, you know, first and second gear, and they can take it away from you and throw you in jail for the rest of your life. Right. Right? You know, so, like, how do you use it? If you're not taking that car to the track, in my mind, it makes zero sense. Right. Well, on the track, I mean, if you look at, like, a Boxster S or a Cayman or even a GT3 or something like that, the performance on the track is amazing. Yep. But it still gets in its own way a little bit when it comes to the enjoyment, at least for somebody that wants to go club race, right? Well, yeah. I mean, we did a lot of development with the, with the Gen 1 and Gen 2 Caymans back in the day. And, and, you know, this is before the club sport and all that stuff came on board. And really, I mean, even before they really developed them into, you know, some of the club racers, the club race cars that they have today. Right. Um, but we spent, you know, we had a lot of time and energy just trying to remove the the built-in nannies in mm-hmm. that to get the chassis to be able to do what it actually could do, you know. Um, but, I mean, kind of going back to your question about that and all the different models, um, I've stopped trying to keep up. Right, you can't. Yeah. It's like there's something new all the time, and it seems like cars are almost being bought like a 911R now is like a paste purely on speculation. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're worth the MSRP is below what they're selling at and you can't even get your hands on one, even if you wanted to. Yep. I have one customer who's, um, he's from the Netherlands and he's actually kind of a, he's kind of famous on the internet. Um, and he took European delivery on a GT3 RS and he has driven it everywhere all over Europe. And, you know, he lives here. He's from South Florida. He actually had the car at uh, Road America last year for the club race. He drove it in the DE and he just, guy drives the wheels off of that car everywhere. Now to me, that actually makes sense. Right. If you can tolerate it. Right. If you can put yourself in that car on a daily basis, all the power to you. Yeah. You're you're my kind of martyr. That's fine with me. Uh, Well, the two guys, the, the owner of the Albert Blue car and him drove from South Florida to Road America for the club, club, excuse me, club race last year. Sure. Right. That yeah. there you go. Like that, I'm high fiving them in my head as I'm telling you the story. Right. So that makes sense. But yeah, the, I mean, it's not the it's not the top of the food chain that bugs me like GT3 and up. It's yeah. all the stuff in the middle. Like all of a sudden you're getting a Targa with center lock wheels, <laughs> you know. And it's just it seems like it's just all this fluff like right in the middle. That's just like, what are we? Why? Uh, what are we doing? Yeah. Obviously, it's to sell cars, right? Because if they're not selling cars, they're not building a GT3. Right, right. So in in that way, you kind of have to almost be okay with it a little bit and kind of let it slide. I, I but, know you're a watch guy, right? And yeah. we both know that, you know, uh, Timex does a really good job. It does. It does an excellent job of keeping perfect time. Yep. So, <laughs> um, so you know, with uh, on in 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 terms of new cars. Uh, another thing Porsche is doing is they've got the Mission E concept coming, mm-hmm. which uh, I guess in, I think it's 2022, they want 50% of their cars to be all electric cars across the entire market line, everything. So wh- where are we, how is that going to work out in a 911? How are we, 
you know, are you going to have a 911 with an electric motor? With what are you going to do? Put the batteries in the back and say it's rear powered? Like, what, <laughs> how is that? How is that enigma of the 911 continue on in that in that world? I, I think you and I feel similarly about this, and I've never had this conversation with you, but I would be willing to bet that, you know, like an electric car just doesn't do it for you, right? For me, nah, not really. Yeah. But to be fair, I haven't driven one. I've never been in a Tesla, but I don't really. Or, or anything. I've never driven a Prius either. I, I have. Doesn't... I have. And I, and I can tell you that, you know, it's, I mean, you know, we both understand the difference between like a DC motor versus, you know, what we love, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and why there would be an advantage there. But, but it's the, it doesn't matter what we think. This is, the, <laughs> this is the inevitability of what's going to happen. This is, we're not debating whether this should happen or right. not. It, it's going to happen. I mean, these cars are coming 2022, 50% of their, yeah. Know, in Europe, upwards of 75 and up percent of what Porsche sells as hybrids, Panameras, Caymans, like yeah. stuff like that. They're, you know, this is, this is happening. So how does, how does Porsche as a motorsports entity, as a, as a company that always strives to be heritage oriented, right? They always look back at the 911 and say, look at all these wins we have. Look what we've done. This 911 has been the same essentially for years and years and years. Now there's like turbo four cylinder stuff coming. Mm -hmm. And then pretty soon 50% of the line is going to be electric. How are they going to rationalize that with their customers when they've basically pulled the rug out from the, everything they've been saying for the last, you know, 50 years? I don't know. I think that the, you know, certainly what, with what they have been doing in WEC, et cetera, and some of those cars that they're building are, are, pretty cool and awesome mm -hmm. uh but I, you know i guess i'm i'm rapidly approaching the age where i don't really have to care about that anymore and i can get away with just being you know kind of an old guy set in my ways right so um so i i believe i'm not probably the only individual like that so i think that they're going to to lose a certain segment of the population but then to there's what a, though? Where do they go? Well, does that? I think that segment population just disappears completely. Yeah. Well, really? I, I think that you know they either get caught in the abyss between being able to afford the cars that they loved, which are now ridiculously expensive, you know, yep. and and maybe I, I don't know. I mean, the other side of it is there is always a bright and shiny crowd, so you know everybody wants something that's new. So maybe that's where that market will go. You know, I always talk about it in terms of, you know, everybody makes the horse comparison, right? Like, well, you can't keep the horse around forever. Yeah. But in the same way, the horse comparison kind of works because now horses are only leisure. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like your your business model will, will thrive in this in this environment where, you know, people that need a place to keep their cars. They're going to drive them on the track and it becomes purely a leisure thing. For the average guy, it sucks because nobody's going to be able to afford to do it. Horses are expensive. Yeah. You know, I can't own, afford to own a horse. I couldn't afford to own a car and keep it at a paddock somewhere. Right. So I think that's the way that things might shift. I think that's a great observation. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Thank you for asking the question you answered me because that was. I wish I would have come up with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it wasn't a completely original concept. It was. Uh, I was talking to um, Akim Anshite, the guy that designed the Veyron and the Chiron. Yeah. When I was in Berlin. And he was making comparisons of that. He also made a, a comparison. We were talking about um, you can't work on your car anymore, really, the new cars. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, that doesn't really matter. He's like, I, I really enjoy this MacBook in front of me, but I doesn't I don't need to take it apart to enjoy it. So, I mean, there's all these little different things that you can say, well, maybe it's not quite dead. You know, and your Timex one was a great example. Yeah. You know, I mean, we still have automatic watches, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we, that's long dead technology. Right. Nobody needs an automatic watch anymore. They're expensive. They don't keep 
perfect time. You have to have them serviced, but we do it anyway because we want to have it and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So in, the only problem is, is that the government's not coming after anybody for wearing a watch. No, <laughs> <laughs> you might want to keep that quiet. They'll probably figure it out. Yeah, they're listening. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I found the uh, two. So I've always wanted one of these cars, but I this morning I saw a car that I really, really want that's not Porsche. But before I tell you what it is, I want to know, in a non-Porsche world, what car is it that you really, really want? Could be from any time period, new, old, whatever it is. Uh, I think I think a lot of guys my age that would have the interest that I have probably would covet, you know, and you can kind of take your pick, an old Alpha. Um that's attainable. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's although right those are kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, the you rising know. tide raises yeah. all ships, right? Yep. Everything's just nuts. Yep. And I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time on track in different uh, M3 chassis. So, you know, I love those things. Um, but really, I mean... <laughs> that must be why you were laughing at me when I said I could outbreak the E36 M3 behind me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking about, oh, this is probably going to be an education in cold tires and, and everything else. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I mean, if this comes down to the execution, but even an old Carmen Ghia or, you know, an old Volkswagen something, right? Like you a know. pickup? You got uh, a pickup project? Yeah, in the there's works, a pickup right? truck. Yeah, a caddy? Yep. 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 But, yeah, I mean, I, I, if something is done nice, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be anything that's too awfully exotic for me to really dig it. Well, it's nice to hear because you hear, like you ask this question of some people and they're answering like, I want a 250 GTO. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, come on, dude. You do not want a 250 GTO. They're beautiful cars, but it's like they're <laughs> square tubing. They're really kind of shitty to drive. You know, you're not really going to enjoy yourself. You know, it's not a good car to choose in this in this I, concept. I joke a lot, um, you know, with with one or two of our mechanics at times when things just get to a point where like, really? And I'll look at him and I'm like, dude, you know, I got an open trailer. You'll work for beer, right? I'll Let's just buy, a, I'll buy a 510 and we'll just go bang around the countryside. What do you think? Yeah. You know? So yeah, I'm not talking about, you know, I like the old stuff. Yeah. I guess like me, I, I, I'm old and analog, I guess. Sure. So one of the cars that I had on my wall when I was growing up was a Ferrari Testarossa. Yeah. And <laughs> I've wanted one for a while, but I saw one, a red one at Road America when I was there down on the, by the show, it was just parked off to the side. And I just sat next to the thing and just looked at it and looked at all the shapes of the car and all like the, you know, the inlets for like the coolers and stuff like that. And you just, I was like, where the fuck is the door handle? Mm -hmm. And I'm just looking at this completely ridiculous car. So that, that's my current car that I really, really want. Um, But the one that I saw this morning, that's probably a real, oh, I'm sorry. There's two, I'll, I'll name two more. Um, before I name this one, I do want to drive a Maserati by turbo. Oh, nice. Okay. For, for yeah. some reason, you know, everybody hates those things so <laughs> much and everybody shits all over them. I just want to drive one and find out if they're really that bad. Right. They might be, but maybe I'll get a good one and it'll be just an amazing car. But the one that I saw this morning was an Aston Martin Lagonda. Hmm. And, um, it was, it was a car that was built right after Aston Martin was basically done. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they got picked up off the ground with this car and the way they did it was this, with this all this cool old technology. I wish I could show you a picture of it, but um, the the interiors, all these electronics and like the digital dash and stuff like that. But this is like way before uh, GM ever did it with their little screen that they had. Yeah. And uh, for some reason, this wedge shaped 
design, but it was designed by an English dude. So it's an English wedge instead of an Italian wedge. And it's just this really goofy looking car that I just really want for some reason. <laughs> 280 horsepower, probably the most unreliable thing I could ever drive. But I really would like to have one of those. It's, um, I found that with most of the stuff that I, I'm drawn to, there's a theme and and a lot of it is, and, and I guess you could be saying the same thing, right? But, you know, I mean, I remember the poster of Farrah Fawcett and I remember the, the, you know, the, the picture or the poster of the 930 or whatever. Right. Yep. Um, that's how you know I'm a little bit younger because I have the Testarossa. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I kind of chuckled about that. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm really drawn to the stuff that that I never like I would see as a kid, but never again really thought I would ever end up owning. Right. Like we talked about 914s earlier. Yep. You know, I, I I still I have a soft spot for those cars because that honestly was what I figured I ultimately would end up with. And to let everybody know, I've got a picture of one on the wall here, and he just keeps staring at yeah. it. He's just like looking at it yeah, over and over again. It's like a nine fourteen six GT. Yeah. You know? So, <laughs> yeah, it's um, you know, that's kind of where I thought I would end up because I didn't ever think I'd be able to afford a nine eleven, right? Or that you know the Carmen Ghia, like we were talking about, a poor yeah. man's Porsche. Um, I even like old Corvairs. You know, I, I'm like. You, you I'm trying to explain it. to people, there's so much more to cars than going fast. Yeah. You know, well, there's so it, much out there. You can't. Until I use the you know the girl next door versus the the porn queen analogy in a lot of places, but it fits there, right? Yeah, absolutely. You're never going to convince a guy that the girl next door, or excuse me, the porn queen is a better program, you know, to the girl next door until they have been to a particular point in their life and they get right. it, yep. right? So a person that's never really driven a car or had the opportunity to drive a car on track will never understand why a particular car would appeal to you more than a different car, right? They're just going to look at the numbers or the specs or, you know, whatever influencer they have in their sure. life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that's all I've got here. Is there, uh, is there any other topics you want to throw out there? Anything that you were, <laughs> when you're driving up on your six hour drive in the horrible traffic, holiday traffic in the snow that oh, came to God. mind? Uh, mandatory driver training for anybody that, that uh you know i always thought there would be it would be kind of cool if there was a so you've got i-94 between madison and minneapolis it's a four-lane freeway mm -hmm. for the, the vast majority of it what if we added another lane that was color-coded where you where it's almost like gran turismo where you had to have a license a special license to drive in whatever lane like you have to have a license to drive in this lane and your car has to have a sticker, a certification to be able to drive in this lane. And if you drive in this lane, you don't have that, you lose your driver's license. That way you could skip all the assholes, drive in the good lane and be gone. That's funny. I say that about the gym. I always say that you should have <laughs> to have a certain amount of hours in the gym before you can be allowed in the gym between certain hours. Right. And yeah, you could do the same thing. There. I have never stepped foot in a gym. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of the same concept. Yeah. Right? We're probably going to end up with that lane, but that lane's going to be for cars that drive themselves. <sighs> so it's going to be the kind of yeah, the opposite of what I, I want. But you, you, I think you're exactly right there, my friend. Maybe you just see a copy just duck. <laughs> <laughs> There's nobody driving the car. They'll just assume it's that. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to let everybody go, and uh, we hope everybody had a Merry Christmas. This will probably air in January while I'm on vacation. So... Uh, I look forward to, to you guys hearing it. And I really want to thank Mark for coming up and having a chat with us. Thanks for having me, Chris. Take care.